Our, our sermon this morning is going to be from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. Go ahead and turn to 2 Timothy 3 in your Bibles. We've been working through 2 Timothy. We're continuing to work through it. We'll be in it for another few weeks, maybe another, another month or so. Uh, it's Paul's final letter, last letter that he wrote to his good friend Timothy, his son in the faith, a man that he's been discipling and mentoring. Uh, he had installed Timothy as the pastor uh, of the church in Ephesus. We looked at 2 Timothy 1. Uh, you know, it was uh, Paul telling Timothy to, to guard the deposit that was entrusted to you, the deposit of the gospel. Guard it, protect it at all costs, even if you, if you suffer. 2 Timothy 2, uh, he says, uh, be strong. Be strong in the faith, persevere, endure, be like a soldier, be like an athlete, be like a a farmer, right? Persevere with Jesus so that you can enjoy his presence, and and as you go, as you're persevering, be kind, be careful, be bold, trust in the sovereignty of God, these kinds of things. Today in 2 Timothy 3, Paul takes a, a kind of a big, long, kind of magnifying glass look at sin, um, the, the doctrine of harmardiology is the doctrine of, of sin. Harmardios means, means sin, and logos means words or study. So harmardiology is the doctrine of sin, the study of sin, and, and this text is uh, harmardiological in a lot, of, a lot of ways. This is Paul looking at sin. Uh, later in, in chapter 3, which we're going to look at next week, he's going to talk about how to uh, guard against sin and how to you know, stand on the firm foundation that is the Word of God to be protected from the dangers of sin. But today, it's looking largely at sin, uh, you know, sin and sinners and, and suffering and these, these kinds of things. So I'm going to read through uh, the first nine verses of Second Timothy chapter 3, and then we're going to spend a few minutes taking a look at it. It reads, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Timothy, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed, uh, opposed Moses, so these men oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege that it is to read your word together, to hear it read aloud, to have it explained and applied. Lord, we could have, uh, we could have easily been born into a country where there are no Bibles or where uh, you get persecuted or killed for reading a Bible, and yet, uh, and yet we have the privilege here of, of studying your word publicly, unashamedly. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to appreciate the marvelous grace that we have received from you through the gospel, through your Bible, 
through your church. We pray that you'd help us to listen to it and to walk in obedience to it. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, verse 1. So like I said, uh, a look at the doctrine of sin, and uh, again, several of the verses right in the middle are just one big, long laundry list of dozens of, of kind of characteristics and, and pictures of, of sin and sinners. But we'll, we'll start in verse 1. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, right? The, the reality is anytime that you look at sin, anytime that you study sin, anytime that you consider uh, sin, the presence of sin, the effects of sin, you're inevitably, go- you're inevitably going to also talk about suffering. And you're going to also talk about difficulty and hardship because one begets the other. And so Paul starts his, his discourse on sin by saying, uh, in the last days there will come times of, of difficulty. It's not, a, not a, a possibility. It's not a contingency. It's a fact. It's an inevitability. Suffering is going to happen. Difficulty is going to happen. Right? So this is the, the opposite of what you, you know, read in, in pop psychology or in self help literature. This is the opposite of what you hear in some streams of, of uh, you know, Protestant Christianity that, that, you know, don't like to talk about sin and don't like to talk about suffering. This is Paul uh, saying that suffering is, is a reality, right? It's not, Paul's not kind of in the, he's not kind of trumpeting, think positive and, and, you know, believe it and you can achieve it or visualize and then actualize or like just you know, rid yourself of the negative energy and the negative thoughts so that your life can be, can be great. Paul is, is very clear, and over and over in all of his letters, same theme, right? He's very clear that suffering is real, difficulty is real, it's inevitable, it comes into your life, which is helpful because if we didn't see that in Paul's writing, then we would have no category for suffering. We'd have no category for, you know, hardship, no category for pain. We wouldn't know how to, de- right, when we would read that God is sovereign in the, in the pages of the Bible, and then we see terrible suffering, right, when we bury uh, our, our family members, our church members, uh, when, when, you know, people, uh, you know, come down with uh, terminal illnesses, right, when there's terrible suffering around us, we would have no way to account for that, no way to persevere through that unless the pages of the Bible not only told us that God is sovereign, God is good, God is going to do what's best for you, and suffering is real, difficulty is real, so expect it and be prepared for it. And not just expect it, not just be prepared for it, but understand that in the last day, like, it, there's almost this, this implication that, that it's going to get worse. And, like The closer that you get to the last days, to the eschaton, to the last things, when, when Jesus himself is going to return, he's going to reclaim his people once and for all and establish his kingdom and set up his eternal reign, the closer we get to that, the worse it's going to get. The more difficulty there's going to be. It's good, like, the Christian should, should have this expectation, not, not, not morbid, not, not uh, pessimistic, but they shouldn't nevertheless have this expectation that any given day of my life should be harder than the one before it, should be more difficult than the one before it. We should never be surprised by, by that, right? I'm not, I'm not going to get into the, um, you know, kind of into the weeds of eschatology about the rapture and the millennium and, and these kinds of things, um, but I think we can all safely say that we're one day closer to the last days now than we were yesterday, and we will be even one day closer to them tomorrow than we are today, regardless of when they're coming and regardless of what specifically that's going to, to look like. And so Paul says, the closer that you get to the last days, your life is going to be difficult. So is it true that 
God loves us and has a wonderful plan for our life? Yes, absolutely, right? Is it true that, that uh, Jesus came so that we could have life and so that we can live it more abundantly? Is it true that, that we are more than conquerors through Jesus who loves us? Absolutely, that's all true. It's all in the, the Bible. Um, however, it's also true that in this world, you will have trouble. That's in the same letter. That's in the same Gospel of John, right? It's also true that, that, it is, that, that we will be persecuted, that the world will hate us. It's also true that there will be times of difficulty in our lives. So if you, if you believe the Bible, and if you want to have a worldview that's consistent with the Bible, then you need to be ready for suffering in your life. You need to be able to trust God through suffering. You need to be able to trust that God is good even when he allows you to suffer. So verse 1, Paul describes and and discusses the inevitability of suffering in our lives. And then in verse 2, he starts to paint a picture of what sin and what sinners uh, might look like. The sin and sinners that are kind of accompanied and associated with suffering, here's what it looks like, verses 2 through through 4. For people will be lovers of self. Right? There's dozens of descriptors here over the next uh, couple of, ne- next several lines. So we're not going to be able to dive into all of them maybe as, uh, you know, comprehensively as we would, as we would like if we were, if we had more, more time. But, uh, we'll start with this first one, right? People will be lovers of self. If you wanted to, I mean, you could just, Put a period right there. That, that, right, there's a reason why Paul starts with lovers of self and ends with, uh, you know, not lovers of God, right, in terms of verses two through four, because those kind of bookend everything that comes in between them. The, the essence of sin is that you love yourself more than you love God. You, you, uh, you know, dethrone God off of the throne of your life and you install yourself on the throne that was meant for God. I love myself. I want to want to do what I want to do. I want to be autonomous, right? God is the king, but I want to be the king. God is in charge, but I want to be in charge. God is the one who tells me what to do. I want to say what I'm going to do, and I don't want anyone to tell me otherwise. I want to look out for myself, live for myself, Look out for my own interests and preferences and desires, right? If you, if you were to boil down sin to its very essence, to its very core, that's what it is. It's, it's, uh, it's replacing God with self. Sin is self-ism. It's, it's self-idolatry, self-worship. Loving yourself more than you love anyone or anything else, including God. And this kind of selfism, this kind of egocentrism, self-worship, self-centered, self, uh, self-ism is going to lead to all of these things that follow it. So you love yourself, you're going to love money. Why? So I can use it to get stuff for myself, to pamper myself, to have what I, what I want. It's love of self is going to lead to pride and arrogance, right? Because I think too highly of myself. It's going to lead to being abusive, right? Pride and high view of self spills over into my relationships. It spills over into how I treat other people, right? Uh, uh, diso- disobedient to parents, right? The, the one place where abuse of other people might tend to manifest itself most readily is toward your family, Right toward your your parents, who you're, they they love you, they raised you. You're called to honor them, obey them, serve them, and you you don't. Ungrateful, right? I don't I don't appreciate anything anyone does for me because I think that I deserve it. My inflated view of self, my high sense of self, thinks that I'm entitled to everything that I have. So I'm not grateful. I'm unholy, 
right? Uh, I don't bother with obeying God's laws because I think they don't apply to me because I have this elevated sense of self where I make my own rules, I make my own laws. Heartless, no compassion for anyone or anything else except myself, unappeasable, nothing is ever good enough for me, no matter what anyone does for me, I always want more. Slanderous, I'm constantly berating people around me, belittling them, talking about them without self-control, right? Total slave to my desires, whatever I feel like I want, that's what I get, that's what I do. I have no ability to, no, no impulse to push back against my desires, right? Brutal, harsh, violent, not loving good, right? I love myself too much to care about loving what is good. I care about myself and my desires more than what is objectively good and right. Treacherous, scheming, right? Plotting, this Machiavellian plan to make sure that everything works out in your favor at the expense of other people. Reckless, leaving behind this like wake, this, this kind of wake of suffering and, and hardship swollen with conceit, this inflated sense of self, and then kind of uh, wraps up this, this kind of string of, of adjectives and, and of pictures with lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, right? The essence of sin is that you, you love yourself, you love money, you love pleasure, you love the things that yourself wants and demands of you. You love those things more than you love God. God created us to love him, and we have exchanged God, the rightful owner and the rightful recipient of our love and our worship and our affection. We've exchanged it for ourselves. We've put ourself in place of God. So now our love and our worship and our affection and our obedience is not given to God who deserves it. It's given to ourself, right? So much of the world's uh, philosophy, so much of the world's exhortation, right? To watch any movie, like, you know, it's going to tell you to love yourself, right? Uh, be kind to yourself. Like, don't, don't live for what, don't be what other people want you to be. Be what you want to be. Live for yourself. What, what they're really saying, it's kind of coded language. What they're really saying is worship yourself. Obey yourself. Have affection primarily for yourself. Right? Verse 4, dethrone God. Verse 2, enthrone yourself on the throne that was meant for God. That's how Paul describes sin in 2 Timothy 3, 2-4. Putting yourself on the throne that was meant for God. What's also interesting in these couple of verses is the word love pops up over and over and over again, which is instructive. It's actually helpful to, to think about, right? That... that uh, Sin is not merely a, a matter of, it's not merely behavioral. It's not a matter of what you do. Sin starts long before the behaviors ever manifest themselves. Sin starts in the heart. It's a matter of your, your love, your desires, your affections, right? What you do, your, your actions, are the result of what you love, your, your affections. Your actions are the result of your affections. What you do is the result of what you love. And so sin, if you kind of do an autopsy on sin, if you reverse engineer it and trace it back further and further, you're going to, you're going to eventually arrive at, not, not at some sort of uh, unholy behavior, but if you reverse engineer it back, you're going you're gonna to arrive at some sort of misplaced desire, some sort of misplaced uh, affection. Which is why which is why growing in holiness and mortifying sin, 
starts with addressing your affections. It starts with addressing what you love and what you care about. It starts by believing the gospel and worshiping God instead of worshiping yourself and your comfort and your status and your approval, right? And then as these newfound affections, these affections for God instead of self, as they, as they take root in your heart, they expel the sins, all of the behavioral sins that were attached to your old affections. As those old affections are replaced with new affections, then they expel the old behaviors that were attached to them. So sin is a matter of love. It's a matter of affection. It's a matter of what we care about, what we think about. But here's something else that's interesting about the word love and the fact that it pops up several times in this verse. One of your, one of your elders mentioned this to me this week. Uh, we, our culture loves, we love love, right? We, we love the word love. We, we're we're philophiles, right? <laughs> like we're, we're, we're lo- we love love, right? We're, we're just a, like, watch any movie, watch any TV show, there's constantly themes of relationships and love, and we're, we're always, you know, we're, we're, we will, we love love, we will, uh, you know, do almost anything in the name of love, we will tolerate almost anything in the name of love. Love is the most, right? Break God's law, commit sexual sin. If you love the person, that's okay, Right? Cheat on your spouse, leave them, marry someone half their, their age. Hey, I'm just following my heart, right? I just, I fell in love with someone else. We've, we've elevated love to the most important thing that there is, but then we've also taken the liberty, we've also presumed and taken the liberty to define love on our terms instead of defining love on God's terms. So, so love is no longer a covenant commitment that we hold to faithfully even when we don't want to anymore. Love is a feeling. Love is, uh, you know, butterflies in your stomach. It's like, a, it's like a, a state that you find yourself in, right? Or love is no longer caring about someone and being committed to their well-being and doing what is best for them even when it comes at expense to yourself or even when it's difficult for them. No, now love is unconditional affirmation, right? If you love me, you'll accept me, you'll accept everything that I do, you'll never confront me or call me to account no matter what, right? You can't tell me that what I'm doing is wrong, that's not loving. You can't tell me that the Bible is true and that I have to obey it. You can't tell me that I am accountable to God. You can't tell me that I am not the king of my own life because that's not loving. So we've said love is the highest good we will do anything, we'll tolerate anything in the name of love. As long as what you do is loving, it's fine. And then we've redefined love as this kind of emotional, you know, uh, feeling that we get and as unconditional affirmation no matter what. And texts like this remind us that love is a high virtue. God does care about love. God does want us to love. But God wants us to love on his terms, not on our own. God wants us to love with covenant faithfulness. God wants us to love someone uh, enough to, to tell them the truth even when it's difficult. We're called to love God. We're called to love our spouse. We're called to love our neighbor. But God is the one who defines what love is. Not us. Not our feelings. Not uh, you know, entertain, not Hollywood, movies, TV, God defines what true love is. So verse one, right? Suffering is real, difficulty is real, it's inevitable, prepare for it, don't be surprised by it, and don't be scandalized by it. 
verses two through four is a big laundry list of sin and sinners and what they, what they look like. And then when you get to verse five, we see a particular one, right? It's almost like verses two through four kind of describe sin and sinners, show us a picture of what they are. Um, and, and the picture is this kind of, oh, it's, it's the younger brother in the, in the, the prodigal son, right? It's, it's overt. It's, it's like sinful. It's very clear, right? These are bad people. And they're like all of the things that we see there are bad and they're not impressive. And they're not, they don't appear to be moral, have any moral value at all. But verse 5, Paul reminds us that sin is not, uh, sin is insidious, right? Sin is not uh, it doesn't just arrive and say, I'm here, I'm going to identify myself as such, right? Some sin, in fact, the most dangerous kind of sin uh, has the appearance of godliness, but denies its power, right? It's the, the usual suspects, right? The, the greatest trick that the devil ever played on the world is convinced... The greatest trick the devil ever played is convincing the world that he doesn't exist, right? The most dangerous forms of sin, the most insidious and the most, uh, you know, dangerous for the people of God is sin that masquerades itself as righteousness and as godliness. Sin that has the appearance of godliness but denies its power. So it works its way into the human heart, it pollutes it, and it slowly kills it, all the while kind of uh, giving the appearance externally of godliness. Right? This, this verse seems to imply that it's possible to know all the right answers to all the right theological questions, right? And to, to you know, know all the Bible verses and to attend church and to have a life that looks pretty sanitized, a life that all of your friends and all of your family look at you and think, man, that guy is doing well, he's buttoned up, he's a good person. It's, it's possible to have a life like that that has the appearance of godliness but lacks power, lacks the power of God. It lacks the Holy Spirit living inside of it. So, right, the power of the gospel is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in our life. When we, when we confess our sins and repent of them and when we trust in Jesus, Jesus forgives us of our sin, he reconciles us to God, and the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of our hearts and gives us power, gives us a, a supernatural power to repent of and to overcome sin in our lives, to walk with God, to glorify him. The true Christian life is not just marked by the external appearance of godliness, it's marked by the internal power of the Holy Spirit that produces the fruit of real, actual godliness. As the Holy Spirit lives in you, as he guides you, as he makes you more like Jesus, not just from the outside, but from the inside, and then it works its way out. So Paul seems to imply that, you know, the worst, the worst sinners are not, the, not drug addicts, drunkards, gluttons, prostitutes, people who don't even have the appearance of godliness. The most dangerous sinners are the people who look the part, play the game, blend in, but don't really know Jesus, don't really trust Jesus. At their core, they're worshiping themselves instead of Jesus, and they don't have the Holy Spirit living in their hearts. They have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. And to those people, and about those people, Paul says, avoid them. Avoid such people. Right? Right? Uh, you know, and notice how the, the, the instruction to avoid such people 
uh, it comes, Paul waits until he gives that one, right? He says all of these things, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, all of these bad, overt sins, and he waits until he says, watch out for and avoid at all costs people that appear to be godly, but deny the power of the gospel, right? Paul was not in the business of avoiding all sin and sinners. Paul went to the ends of the earth in search of the worst sinners he could find. He left the enclave of Israel and went to the pagans, went to the idolaters, went to the sexually immoral. He went to the people who were worshiping other gods, and he interacted with them, and he he drew near to them, and he proclaimed the gospel to them, and he called them to repentance and faith. Paul was happy to interact with the worst of sinners, So was Jesus, right? Jesus was accused of being a friend of sinners and eating meals with sinners. When Jesus prayed the high high priestly prayer, he says, I pray that that you would protect my people. I don't pray, God, that you would take them out of the world, that you would, you know, completely sever any interactions or any engagement that they might have with sinners. I pray that you would leave them in the world, but that you would protect them and sanctify them as they are there. So this, this verse is not a, a call for Christians to withdraw and kind of, you know, uh, you know quarantine. That's a not, not, a, not a good word in our... It's the only word that popped into my head. I didn't know what to say. This is, not a, this is not a verse that says, withdraw away from the world. Withdraw away from sin and sinners. Don't ever interact with them. Don't ever be a part of them. Right? Get in a bunker and never interact with the world. That's not what this text is teaching. It's teaching to avoid those people that have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. Right? Avoid people who identify as Christians and profess to be Christians but don't actually believe the gospel. Don't actually have the Holy Spirit. Don't actually worship Jesus. They worship themselves and they indulge in unrepentant sin. Be on guard against them. Avoid, this text is, this is referring to church discipline is, is really what this verse is, is talking about, right? It's the church's responsibility to police itself and to make sure that the people in it are actually Christians. Because... If, if, there, if people kind of infiltrate the body of Christ that have the appearance of godliness but deny the power of the gospel, it's, they're not just hurting themselves. It's not, just a, a, it's not just a personal thing between them and God, and that's it, because the next verse implies that they have a deadly effect on other people within the body of Christ. Among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, Right? Right? They, they pretend to be Christians, but they love, they love themselves more than they love Jesus. And if the church is not careful to guard against these kind of fraudulent Christians, they will infiltrate and they will prey on the church and they will specifically prey on the most vulnerable people first. Right? A, a wolf in sheep's clothing is going to infiltrate into the flock of sheep and it's going to look for the sheep that are hurting the sheep that are wobbly need, the sheep that are having difficulty, you know, uh, just, just with normal, the normal course of life, and that's who the wolf in sheep's clothing is going to uh, consume first. Paul specifically mentions women. I don't think that he is, uh, you know, I think that uh, women were particularly vulnerable in his day. And so he's, he's kind of saying they capture weak women. He's kind of got this picture of the most vulnerable person in our population, in our flock that I can think of. That's exactly who these fraudulent Christians who have the appearance of godliness but deny its power, that's who they target, that's who they go after. 
people who are weak, people who are hurting, people who are burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, who learn, they're always learning but never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. Right? That's, who, that's who these kind of fraudulent Christians and wolves in sheep's clothing are going to target first. So Paul says, be careful. Guard against these kinds of... This is, this is why we as a church practice church discipline. And it's why we as a church... It's why if you want to become a member of this church, you have to have an interview with the elders. Right? So that we can, as best as we can, discern whether or not uh, a, a prospective member is a Christian or not. So that we can welcome Christians into our fellowship. And that we can guard the fellowship, guard the flock against wolves in sheep's clothing. People who have the uh, appearance of godliness while denying its power. And then look who... Uh, Paul uses as an example or as a pattern for these kinds of, of, uh, of Christians or these, these kinds of fraudulent people who identify as Christians. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Janus and Jambres, according to some extra biblical, you won't find their names anywhere in the Bible except right here, but according to some extra biblical sources, uh, these were the names of the Egyptian magicians in Exodus chapter 7 who copied the miracles of Moses, right? When he would throw his staff down and it would become a snake and he'd turn the, you know, water, water into blood and all kinds of things. Like all of these, you know, miracles that Moses did, uh, the people that copied him and kind of had these counterfeit miracles that they would do, the, the appearance of supernatural power, uh, uh, you know, tradition uh, says that their names were Janus and Jambres. And Paul says, those guys... Those guys and who they were in Exodus 7 are a pattern of who fraudulent Christians are in the church today. They pretend to have supernatural power. They can even do some tricks and impress some people and maybe get the most powerful man in the land to kind of be on their their side. But in reality, they're opposed to Moses. They're opposed to God. And God is opposed to them. So a person who, who pretends to be a Christian, who, who kind of externally poses as, as a Christian, but in their heart they trust in themselves and their merit instead of God and his grace. They love themselves and their comfort and their security instead of God and his grace. They indulge in unrepentant sin instead of obeying God. People that have the appearance of godliness but deny its power, they, like Janus and Jambres, are opposed to God. They're opposed to the gospel and they're opposed to the people of God. <clears throat> so verse 1, sin and suffering and difficulty will come, it's inevitable. Verse 2 through 4, sin is the dethroning of God and putting yourself on the throne that was meant for God. Verses 5 through 8, the most dangerous sin that there is 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 kind of pretending to be a Christian while denying the gospel in your heart. And then, and then kind of leveraging that platform to prey on vulnerable people and do them spiritual harm. <clears throat> then finally in verse 9, Paul discusses the, the end game, right? The ultimate fate of sin and sinners. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So, what do you have to do according to this verse? You have to be prepared, or according to this passage, right? You have to be prepared for sin and suffering in your life. You have to be aware of sin and sinners. You have to be on guard against sin and sinners. You have to protect the weak and vulnerable people in your church against sin and sinners. What do you not have to do? 
You don't have to win all the time. You don't have to, uh, you know, you don't have to achieve some sort of eternal cosmic dominance over sin and sinners. It's not, it's not your job as a Christian to be the one who masterminds and executes God's plan to destroy sin in the world forever. That's God's job. God is going to see to it that sin does not get very far. Sinners do not get very far. That their folly will be plain to all. It's an inevitability because God is going to see to it. Right? If, we're, if we're not careful, we'll convince ourselves somehow that it's our responsibility or somehow that it is in our power to win some final, decisive victory over sin in this world. God's plan is to defeat sin. God's plan is to establish his kingdom. But God's plan to do those things is not dependent on us. It's not dependent on our efforts and it's not dependent on our abilities. It's not, that's not something that we, that's something that God carries on his shoulders, not something that we are to carry on our shoulders. Right? So you don't have to become a culture warrior, and make sure that you impose everything that you think on everyone else. You don't have to obsess over winning every single argument and making sure that everyone conforms to what you think that they should be. You don't have to be devastated or infuriated when people sin, right? Right? You don't have to think, oh man, uh, sin is winning, I'm losing, and if I'm not careful, the battle for God's glory and God's plan is going to be lost unless I can somehow get on top of the power structure and force a win here. Paul says God is going to win anyway. Sin will lose, God will win. Period. And he will win because of his sovereign authority, not yours. God will establish his kingdom. You don't have to be the one who does that. God will expose sin for what it is. You don't have to do it. God will ensure that sin and sinners don't get the final say, that they don't achieve ultimate victory. You don't have to. As a Christian, it's not a responsibility to win. It's our responsibility to be faithful. Right? God is not asking you to personally win the eternal cosmic battle between God and sin and Satan. God's going to win that. God's asking you to be faithful. God's asking you to be faithful and to work hard in your own personal battle against sin and Satan by repenting and trusting in Jesus. The Christian life is a lot less about uh, asserting cultural dominance, right? winning some big war against secularism, or building God's kingdom for him, it's a lot less about that, and it's a lot more about repenting of sin in your own heart and in your own life, and trusting Jesus to save you from your sins. Right? It's very easy to be focused on society's sins and to overlook our own sins. It's very easy to, to you know, kind of keep society's sins big in our, on our field of vision, right? So on the on the right, abortion, sexual sin. On the left, racism, oppression, whatever it is. It's very easy to, to, that's all we think about is society's sins. Sins that I don't struggle with conveniently because that's why I picked the side that I'm on. So I'm going to be scandalized by those sins that I don't personally struggle with and I'm going to work to eradicate them and I'm going to talk about them constantly and that's all I'm going to care about all the while leaving the sin in my own heart untouched. Paul's saying, let God 
handle other people's sins. You worry about your own. Let God fight the culture war. Let God make sure that sin doesn't win in the end. Because he will. He, he will make sure that sin does not get very far and that the folly of sin will be exposed and be made plain to everyone. The reality is every single person will stand before God. They will give an account for how they live their life. They will answer for every single sin. God is going to do that in his own perfect timing so you, we, can unburden ourselves. We don't need to make sure personally that every single person pays for every single sin to our satisfaction. We don't need to make sure that we win every argument and that people know how right we are and how bad they are and how much they need to change to be conformed to our image. We don't need to personally make sure that we shape the world into what we want it to look like. We just need to be faithful. We need to repent of our own sin. We need to make sure that our own lives personally look like what God has called our lives to look like. We need to trust Christ Trust that he paid the penalty for our sin. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to let him sanctify us and conform us to the likeness of Christ. We need to get down off the throne of our lives and let Jesus take his rightful place there. And we need to walk with God and trust in his sovereign plan. Right? God is the king, not us. And our calling this morning is to recognize that and to worship him in accordance with it. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we bow before you, acknowledging your sovereign authority over this world, acknowledging your sovereign authority over our lives and our hearts. Lord, we look at the places in our lives where we have sought to sit on the throne instead of giving you your rightful place on it, and we repent. We look at the places where our sin and selfishness has hurt others and we repent. We look at uh, the ways where we have had the appearance of godliness externally, but not trusted and relied on the power of the Holy Spirit internally, and we repent. We look to you and we ask you for mercy so that we can enjoy your presence and walk with you together as a church. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.